Thank you for listening to this gospel resource from Cornerstone Baptist Church in Wiley, Texas. Feel free to use or share this resource, but we ask that you not alter the content in any way. For more information about Cornerstone Baptist Church, please visit us at cornerstonewiley.org. Well, let's open God's Word now to 1 Timothy chapter 4. In Ecclesiastes, we read that for everything there is a season, there is a, a time for every matter under heaven. And then we have the contrast, a time to be born and a time to die, a time to plant and a time to pluck up what is planted, a time to weep and a time to laugh, a time to mourn and a time to dance. There is a time to sing happy songs, and there's a time to sing somber songs. There's a time for us to be joyful and happy, and there's a time for us to, to think sober thoughts. And today is one of those days when we need to think sober thoughts. And in part, it's because of the passage that is in front of us. Here's what the Apostle Paul has written to Timothy, his brother, under the inspiration of the Spirit of God. In 1 Timothy chapter 4, starting in verse 1. Now the Spirit expressly says that in later times some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared, who forbid marriage and require abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. For everything created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving, for it is made holy by the word of God and prayer. This is God's word. <clears throat> Would you pray with me before we study it together? Father, we do thank you for your word. We thank you that there is a time to celebrate and there is a time to, to think soberly about the life that we live. And as we study this passage, as we think on this truth, most of us can call to our minds friends, family, brothers, sisters who once sat with us, once worshipped with us, once participated in Bible study with us, and yet now they have abandoned the truth, they have walked away from the faith, they have departed the gospel. And so Lord, I pray that this morning you would give us an especially keen focus on this passage. Help our hearts to be nourished by the truth of this passage, but also warned by it, because it is, is easy for a conscience to become seared. So help us this morning, accomplish your purpose through the preaching of your word, to both strengthen your people and to call unbelievers to you in faith in Christ. I pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Just, just as a preliminary, I don't normally sound like this, although I like the depth of my voice right now. <clears throat> and normally, if, if you're a visitor, I'd be hunting you down and trying to shake your hand and those kind of things. But given the situation I'm facing, I'm not going to do that. And it is an act of love on my part, but, but God is good. But I just want to focus your mind back on the text. In case you missed it, Paul just warned us of something that in later times, some will depart from the faith. 
Some who once claimed to love Jesus. Some of your friends who got baptized when they were little. Some of the folks you've seen at church. Even some of those who you've grown up with and and done ministry with. They will be tempted to deny the faith and many will depart. It's a scary thought. It's not something we like to talk about that often. But it does happen. It happens all the time. When I was growing up, I had an on and off relationship with the church. Maybe you can identify with this. I went to church on holidays. I caught most of the revivals because I was a good Baptist boy. I went to a few youth events and, and anything else that my parents made me attend. And I called myself a Christian. I was baptized a couple of times, but the truth was I didn't believe the gospel. I wasn't willing to part with my lifestyle of sin and to walk with God faithfully. I was an unbeliever professing to be a believer. But in college, God pursued me. God opened my eyes to my sin and my need of a Savior. He changed my heart. And I I mentioned this a few weeks ago. I got involved in youth ministry pretty soon after my conversion. And because of the experience that I had had as a teenager, I kind of knew what to expect. I met countless teenagers all of whom had made professions of faith as young children, but who had never been discipled, and they weren't actually walking with the Lord. I met young men and women who'd prayed a prayer of salvation at church, but their lives were no different than the unbelieving kids next door. And I wasn't the only one seeing this. Um, In 2007, Vody Balkum wrote a book titled Family Driven Faith. And in this book, he brought our attention to a sobering statistic. Here's what he writes, according to researchers, between 70 and 88% of Christian teens are leaving the church by their second year of college. Between 70 and 88%. That's right, he says, modern American Christianity has a failure rate somewhere around 8, almost 9 out of 10 when it comes to raising children who continue in the faith. Have you ever heard that statistic? That's pretty sobering. And it should get our attention because these numbers represent our children. These numbers represent our friends. These numbers represent us. And Paul reminds us, some of us will depart from the faith. Some of them will depart from the faith. And the question we need to be asking is why? Why? How does this happen? What What takes place that brings this about? Well, this passage does help us to understand how this happens. In it, Paul relates the clear teaching of the Holy Spirit to let us know how apostasy occurs. And he gives us also a clear path forward so that we can stay faithful along the way. So let's look first at back at verse 1, and let's recognize the times. Now the Spirit expressly says that in later times some will depart from the faith. This is the only time that the Holy Spirit is mentioned in the book, that, and, it, and he has something to teach us about how to live, about the life that we are currently living. The, the Holy Spirit has spoken clearly to express in words through the Apostle Paul that in these later times, some will depart from the faith. Now, the question is, what does that phrase later times mean? And some of you with your eschatological antenna going up, you think, oh, this is talking about the end time stuff. This is talking about the the seven-year tribulation and all that kind of stuff. Well, 
maybe, but probably not. This phrase is used throughout the New Testament and phrases similar to it. And generally speaking, when we see phrases like this, they're referring to the age of Christ or the age of the gospel, the time between the first coming of Christ and the second coming of Christ. And what the Holy Spirit is making clear to us is that during this time, there are going to be many who profess faith in Christ, but they deny him and they walk away. That's what apostasy means. Apostasy means to deny the faith or to depart from the faith, as the ESV says. And it conveys the idea of abandoning a cognitive position. I once believed this. I no longer believe this. I once professed to believe this. I no longer profess to believe this. And in reality, it describes people who once, once walked in a way that made it seem as though they were Christians, but now either by their words or their actions, they have abandoned the gospel. How does this happen? How does someone abandon their core beliefs? How does someone deny what they once affirmed? Well, there's a couple of reasons, a couple of answers to that question of why. First, well, there's a theological reason. The Bible tells us that those who fall away from the faith were actually never true believers to begin with. In 1 John chapter 2 and verse 19, John writes this about a group of people who once walked with the church and then they left the church. And by the way, John is writing to the same church that Paul is writing to regarding Timothy. This is the church at Ephesus. And he says, they went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us, but they went out that it might become plain that they are all not of us. Here's what he's saying. Those who once professed faith in Christ and were members of the church, but abandoned the gospel and abandoned belief in Christ and abandoned the people of God, they were never truly born again. They weren't truly of us. They were false converts. They may have prayed a prayer. They may have professed to be Christians, but they never truly loved Jesus. If they had been true believers, they would have continued in the faith to the very end. And the fact that they departed reveals that they were never truly part of the family of God. So there's a theological reason to why apostasy happens. Their profession was false. There's also a practical reason why this happens so frequently. One research team conducted a massive national study to help us understand why so many young people are abandoning the faith. Here's a quote. Religious congregations are losing out to school and the media for the time and attention of youth. When it comes to the formation of the lives of youth, faith communities typically get a very small seat at the end of the table for a very limited period of time. The youth formation table is dominated structurally by more powerful and vocal actors. Most teens know details about television characters, pop stars, social media influencers, and pro athletes, but many are quite vague about Moses and Jesus. Most youth are well-versed about the dangers of drunk driving and AIDS and drugs, but many haven't a clue about their own traditional core ideas. Many parents also clearly prioritize homework and sports over church or youth group attendance. This is telling us two things. Churches are often failing to make disciples, and parents aren't taking discipleship seriously. It's very practical answers to why this is happening. Have you ever heard the phrase, nature abhors a vacuum? It means that empty space doesn't stay empty for long. 
When you abandon one belief, another is ready to take its place. People don't just reject one belief system and then remain open-minded for the rest of their lives. God didn't wire us that way. The space in our heart and the space in our minds must be filled with something that gives meaning and purpose to our lives. And by our programming as a family and as a church, we can determine what we think is the most important. We can push kids in a particular direction and say, this is more valuable than this. It's just a practical answer to why this is happening. So there's a theological answer to why this is happening. There's a practical answer to why this is happening. But there's also a diabolical answer to why this is happening. Notice what Paul says is waiting to take the place of faith in Christ. He says, some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and the teaching of demons. How do we detect false teaching? Paul's talking about spiritual warfare here. And he's saying that the beliefs and ideas that are waiting to take the place of faith in Christ are spiritual and demonic. In other words, apostasy has a source, and the source is diabolical, deceitful spirits and demonic teaching. One commentator said this, Scripture portrays the devil not only as the tempter, enticing people to sin, but also as the deceiver, seducing people into error. And often he does both together as when in the Garden of Eden he persuaded our first parents to doubt and then to disobey God's word. Now some of you are thinking, man, this just got interesting. We, we get all excited when we start talking about spiritual things. There's something about this topic that draws our attention and, and I would just go one step further and say, not only does it draw our attention, but it's drawn our culture's attention. Our culture has become absolutely obsessed with scary and demonic stuff. And in case you don't know this, this year alone, more than a dozen films debuted where demonic possession was the major theme of the film. A dozen. There's a, there's a genre of movies called horror movies. We know this. But there's a subgenre of, of horror known as possession films. Twelve of them came out this year. Not to mention the video games that came out as well. We're just a culture obsessed with this kind of thing. And I'm not saying that, that this is necessarily connected and this is going to lead you away into demonic error. But it could. Some of you might be thinking, well, how, all that's make-believe. Movies are make-believe. Games are make-believe. That's just entertainment. I'm not going to start worshiping a demon. Okay, but I want you to consider what Paul says here. Notice where he says the teaching of demons comes from. He says it comes through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared. Here's what he's saying. Demonic teaching comes through human agents. Paul is talking about people, men and women, who teach godless ideas and unbiblical worldviews with a smile on their face. Paul is talking about Hollywood scriptwriters who pen demonic stories in the hopes of taking your money. He's talking about those daytime talk show hosts who want you to believe that you are the center of the universe instead of God. He's talking about influencers who want you to believe that the most important thing about your life is how you look on any given day. He's talking about those celebrity philosophers who will tell you not to listen to anything but your truth because that's all that matters. These are demonic, unbiblical, ungodly ideas and our world and our ears are just being flooded with them. 
don't underestimate the influence of these ideas in your own life and in the lives of your children. Demon-inspired teachings make their way into the church and the world through human agents. When people depart from the faith and begin to deny Jesus, it's not because they signed up for a weekend class on demon worship. It's because some unbiblical idea got shared to them by a friend or a professor or someone online, and that idea takes deep root in their heart and it begins to take over their identity. False teaching comes to us through human agents, human agents who are spiritually compromised. Look at what he says, through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared. They are insincere, they are liars, he says, and their conscience has been rendered ineffective. Their conscience, that internal sense of right and wrong, that God-given instinct about where to go and what to do, that has been cauterized. The, The Greek word there is cauterized. It's literally been burned away to the point that it is no longer effective. It no longer helps them determine truth and error. That part of them is is ineffective burned away. And when this happens, or how this happens, is when, well, let's just talk about it in the, in the realm of the church. How does this happen for those within the realm of the church? When we stop submitting to God's word and we start catechizing ourselves with the world's ideas. Do you know you can calibrate your conscience? You have an influence over your conscience. As Christians, we let the word of God calibrate our conscience. And we become sensitive to the things that God tells us to be sensitive to. But when we put that aside and we begin to look at the world, and then our, our conscience can be sensitive to the things of the world. And when we stop listening to the word and we stop looking to the world to help us understand what's good and what's right, this is how our conscience can become seared ineffective in helping us to walk with Christ. This happens when we stop submitting to God's word. It happens when we turn a deaf ear to sound teaching and we open our ears to deceptive sound bites. It happens, children, young people, teenagers, when you stop listening to mom and dad and you start listening to that person online that doesn't even know you. It happens when we develop our life's purpose on worldly slogans. We can deaden the sensitivity of our conscience by arguing against it. And eventually, the warning bells in our hearts get muffled to the point that we can't hear them anymore. This can happen. It can happen to us. As Christians, we have to learn how to regularly calibrate our conscience according to God's word. Otherwise, our conscience can to become seared. Statements like this can become searing to our conscience. How can it be wrong if two people love each other? Or my body, my choice. Or my pronouns are fill in the blank. These statements may sound reasonable culturally, but they deny the truth that God has revealed. And our hearts can be, our conscience can be calibrated in a worldly direction whereby we abandon the truth. False teaching may sound reasonable, but ultimately it doesn't line up with God's word. Look at what Paul says in verse 3. He brings us back to the argument. He says, their conscience are seared because they have forbidden marriage and require abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. 
You see, in Ephesus, which that's where this letter was written, Timothy was a, a pastor of the church in Ephesus. In Ephesus, there were two ideas, two main ideas right here in this text that are being promoted, and they both relate to natural human desires, the human desire for sex and the human desire for hunger or food. Forbidding marriage was most likely a way to try to curb the desire for sex. Requiring abstinence from food was most likely a prohibition against eating meat. And there's, there's all these ideas kind of tied into that. We don't know exactly what it was. We don't believe that what was, they were dealing with here was necessarily this, this Jewish um, Pharisaism that just continued on. We believe it was probably some kind of a mixture of Gnostic Christianity that was just budding at that particular time. And that Gnostic Christianity, well actually don't call it Christianity, just call it Gnosticism. What was happening is that they believed that everything related to the physical life was bad and everything related to the spiritual life was good. And so they could deny their natural physical urges and that was supposedly a good spiritual thing, and that's what we believe is happening here. And Paul is saying, that has nothing to do with biblical Christianity. You've abandoned a worldview for another one. These debates were common for Paul. If you want to read more about it, he, he addressed both of these issues in 1 Corinthians as well as the book of Romans. And, and, and literally, that's what we believe was going on. They were teaching false doctrine, and Paul is saying it's going to lead people away from the gospel. It's going to lead people away from Christianity. It's a whole other thing that you're doing. They seemed reasonable, though. The statements seemed reasonable. The ideas seemed reasonable. So how bad could they be? They were common cultural ideas. So what's wrong with mixing a little bit of the world with our Christianity? Well, the problem was that these teachings were contrary to God's word. They simply were not true. And to embrace them was to reject the truth. And they weren't just considering these false doctrines. They weren't just thinking about them and reading on them so they could familiarize themselves with these ideas. He says they had devoted themselves to them back in verse 1. You can devote yourself to ideas that will lead you away from Christ. Did you hear that? You can devote yourself to ideas that will lead you away from faithfulness to Christ. You can become devoted to things that will cause you to abandon your hope in Jesus. Your faith commitments, they're leading you somewhere. And often it's the case that we don't know where they're leading until it's too late. So let me summarize this and move on. False teachers will lead people astray. The source of their teaching is demonic. Their conscience has been rendered ineffective. Their ideas sound reasonable, even popular, but they will make shipwreck of your faith. But there is a way that we can arm ourselves against such teaching that begins and ends with God's word. Look at verse 4. For everything created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving, for it is made holy by the word of God in prayer. True teaching is founded upon God's work in creation. Everything created by God is good. And that statement, it might sound familiar to you, it should. It comes from Genesis 1, 31, where God, having created all that he created in the, first, the, the days of creation, he looks back on all that he has made, and what does he declare? He declares it is very good. That's where this statement comes from. And as the Bible unfolds, God gives us instruction on how to enjoy the good things that he has given us. He even gives us laws to regulate the way we enjoy them because 
After Genesis 2 comes Genesis 3. And in Genesis 3, sin enters into not only the world, but also human hearts. And it, and, and it, it has entered in such a way that we can take the good things that God has created and we can turn them into idols. Take sex and food, for example. Both of them are gifts from God, but because of sin, we have corrupted the purpose of both of them. Sex was and is a gift to be enjoyed only within the context of monogamous heterosexual marriage, but because of sin, we've turned sex into something that brings God judgment. Food is a gift that sustains life and signals provision, but sin has turned us gluttonous. And Paul doesn't tell us that everything is good. He says everything God created is good. And I think that the reference point to creation here is key. It reminds us that God made everything good. But after creation came the fall. The evil that was unleashed in the world in Genesis 3 has left its corruption on all of us. And that means that we need wisdom. We need discernment. And we need God to give us direction on how to enjoy the good things he has made and not to allow them to become idols in our heart and life. The answer to how we can stay faithful is not to forbid marriage. The answer is not to starve yourself. The answer to, is to embrace God's gifts according to God's purposes. Nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving, Paul says. The answer is to receive God's gifts and follow God's word and how we enjoy them while being thankful to the Lord. True teaching is revealed in the word of God and it should make us thankful to God for the things he's given us. He mentions two things here, the Word of God and prayer. These are two tracks that help us to keep our way straight. Like we started off in Psalm 1, how can we be nourished and rooted and bear fruit by meditating on the law of God, the Word of God, day and night? What does the Word of God teach us about food? That's instruction we need to know. What does the Word of God teach us about sex? That's instruction we need to know. What does the Word of God teach us about marriage? What does it teach us about money and family and righteousness? These are questions that we need to answer, and the Scriptures give us the answer. And our task is to let the Word of God guide our thinking and our lives so that we can stay faithful and be able to spot the counterfeit when it comes. Brothers and sisters, as this new year gets underway, I want to urge you, to commit yourself to the regular reading of Scripture. It's something that many of us just take for granted, that we're going to start our day and fill our day and maybe end our day with Scripture, but some of you haven't made that commitment. And one of the reasons that I wanted to just come right out of the gate with the harshness of this passage is not to scare you, but to reveal to you something of the reality that we live in. We can easily be led astray. We can easily depart from the faith. And we can do it all the while thinking, well, there's nothing wrong with this. Well, is there? How do you know? How are you going to be prepared? One of the greatest ways that God has given us to be prepared is he's given us his word. He has inspired his word. He has preserved his word. And you have it in your hands. Read it. Study it. Share it with others. Share it with your spouse and your children. Memorize it and meditate on it so that you can be faithful, so that we can be faithful. Surround yourself with faithful brothers and sisters who are committed to do the same and hold one another accountable to be sanctified in God's word. Tomorrow starts a whole new year. 
This is a great opportunity for us to make some new commitments, to repent of old patterns and make some new commitments that will bear fruit for the sake of Christ. True teaching is revealed in the Word of God and should cause us to be thankful to God. And our thankfulness is going to be acknowledged by prayer. The function of thankfulness in prayer is to acknowledge God's provision and express our gratitude for His generosity. And this can happen in a lot of ways. It's probably the case that many of you have a a regular pattern of before a meal, you stop and you pray and you ask God to bless the food and you thank Him for it. Saying grace before a meal, it goes way back prior to New Testament times. It's a good idea. But our prayers of gratitude should extend far beyond the meals we eat. When was the last time that you thanked the Lord for all of the blessings in your life that come from his hand? When's the last time that you thanked the Lord for the gift of salvation that is ours by grace? When is the last time you thanked the Lord for the eternal hope we have in Christ and the promise of heaven that awaits the faithful? When is the last time you thanked the Lord for waking you up and giving you another day, letting you know that he's not done with you, he has a purpose for you today? G.K. Chesterton once wrote, you say grace before meals, okay, but I say grace before the play and the opera, grace before the concert, grace before I open a book, grace before sketching or painting or swimming or fencing or boxing or walking or playing or dancing, and grace before I dip the pen in the ink. There is nothing that we have that's not a gift from God's gracious hand. We should be thankful for it all, and we express our gratitude in prayer. The word of God and prayer. These are the two tracks that Paul says are going to help keep us faithful. So what do we do with all of this? First thing we need to do is we need to accept the truth of this passage. We need to understand that some will depart from the faith as they are tempted to believe lies instead of holding on to the truth. And I want us to wrestle with the fact that between 70 and 88% of teenagers will leave the church by their second year of college. I want you to hear that and let it motivate you not to become a statistic. And I'm not just talking to the teenagers in the room, talking to moms and dads as well. If you know that between seven and nine people out of ten are going to walk off a cliff, you'll be more aware of the edge. Moms, dads, students, let's be faithful. Let's strive to be faithful and discipline ourselves to do the things that we're called to do to stay that way. Secondly, and this is perhaps the most important of all, you need to believe and know the gospel. Do you know what Christians really believe? Let me just tell you, the the ideas about food and sex, these are, they're they're not the primary message of, of the gospel. They're not the primary message of the Christian faith. They're important, very important. But the central message of the Christian faith, we call it the gospel, and we call it gospel because it's good news. That's what it means. It's good news for sinful people because of what Jesus did on the cross. The central truth of the Christian faith is that Jesus, who is the eternal Son of God, became a man so that he could rescue man from the punishment our sin deserves, and he did this by dying in our place and freeing us from the guilt of sin that we bear and uniting us to God in his righteousness. 
The gospel is not about what we do to earn God's love. So as important as this instruction is about food and sex and all these things, that's not the main gist of the gospel. That's not the central truth of the faith. The central truth is Christ. The gospel is not about what you must do to earn God's love. It's about what God has done to show us his love in Christ. And he calls us to come to him with the empty hands of faith. He doesn't say, clean yourself up and I'll think about it. He says, come to me all you who are weary and heavy laden and I will give you rest. You need to know the truth of the gospel and believe it. And if you're struggling with some of those other things, faithful, mature Christians can help you along with the word of God. But you need to believe the gospel and know the truth. Third, we need to commit ourselves to the word of God in prayer. It seems too simple, right? It seems too good to be true. You might think that for us to battle against demonic instruction and demonic teaching and, and, and spiritual forces of darkness, that we would need some super spiritual insider information, right? Some magical plan to bring Satan down, and God's plan is be committed to my word and prayer. Isn't that interesting? Be committed to the word and prayer. Are you committed to reading and studying God's Word? Are you growing in the simple spiritual discipline of personal prayer? The Word equips our minds. It informs our heart. It helps us to spot lies and counterfeits. And prayer helps us to draw close to the person of God. It's where we open our heart and mind and seek God's presence and help. Commit yourself to the Word of God in prayer. Don't become a statistic. 70 to 88%. Don't become a statistic. Accept the truth of this passage. Let it motivate you to plant deep roots into your faith in Christ. Know the truth of the gospel and believe it and commit yourself to the word of God in prayer. It's really easy for us, and we're looking back on this past year, and some of you can amen this. It's really easy for us to go through the motions of one day a week religion, isn't it? but we need deeper anchors than that if we want to be faithful to the end. So let's be like that man in Psalm 1 who is planted by streams of living water and meditating on the word of God day in and day out. Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you for the promises of your word as well as the warnings in your word. I thank you for the truth of the gospel that though I am a sinner, desperate sinner, my Lord loves me. While I was yet a sinner, Christ came to die for me. That's how you've displayed your love in the gospel. Lord, we thank you for this truth, and I pray that you would open eyes and hearts even now to see their need of a Savior, to turn from their life of self-sinfulness, and to receive Christ with the empty hands of faith. And for the rest of us who are believers, and this message has hit us in certain ways, whether it's confronted us about certain things or it's just an old message we already knew, Father, we need to recommit ourselves to this simple spiritual disciplines that help us to stay faithful to you. And so, Lord, would you give us a hunger for your word, a desire to know what your word says? Would you give us a, 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 an abundant willingness to Thank you for all of the things that you've done in our lives, but also to ask you to guide us in life. Lord, help us to be humble. Help us to be filled with truth and help us to be faithful. That's your promise that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ. Lord, bring it to completion. 
continue to work in our hearts. Draw us closer to you and keep us on the path. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.